Well, good morning. So this morning we're taking a break uh, shortly from our verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. We're going to talk some about uh, current events in our world from a biblical uh, perspective and really going to ask some questions about the church, about Israel, about Palestine. You know, think about this. Should we as Christians, as Christians who know the Bible, love God's word, love the Lord, should we stand with Israel or should we be for freeing Palestine? Which is correct? Which is right? It seems that is an important question. So we're going to look at that this morning. On October 7th, 2023, it was a dark day in Israel. Um, it was a recent day in Israel, not that long ago, in a very dark day. A group known as uh, Hamas from a place called the Gaza Strip launched an attack on unexpecting and vulnerable Israelites at 6.30 in the morning, by land, by sea, they attacked Israel. Israel, you know, is small, like Six Israels fit inside of North Carolina. And the Gaza Strip is tiny in Israel. This is a small area that we're talking about. October 7th, this day, was a holiday in Israel. Soldiers were off for the day. No one expected 2,200 rockets in 20 minutes at 6.30 in the morning. 1,500 militants from the Gaza Strip from this group called Hamas to enter Israel into neighborhoods, cul-de-sacs, communes, to go to a music festival, and to kill over 1,200 people. It's it's horrifying. It's, It's so evil, right? And, you know, just for perspective, right, like, Like Israel is a country, again, I said six Israels will fit in North Carolina. Israel is a country of 10 million people. America is a country of over 330 million people. So for perspective, you know, if you think about like September 11th, 9-11, that being, you know, really shaking for Americans, per capita, the number of people who died in Israel relative to the population is the equivalent of if we had 40 September 11th. So that's how it feels to them, right? And, you know, in September 11th with America, right, like some of us that were alive then, like like most of us, some of us might, but most of us don't even know someone who died. Everyone in Israel knows someone who died on October 7th. It's different. 240 hostages. And so on October 8th, the next day, Israel declared war on Hamas in the Gaza Strip, airstrikes, a siege of supplies, ground invasion, goal to eliminate this terrorist organization. Initially, there was very strong support from most of the world, certainly from America, to stand with Israel. USA was clear, we stand with Israel. And then, of course, there are these pro-Palestinian rallies that break out, Um on college campuses, you've heard of those, I'm sure. You've seen them in downtown Raleigh, where I was preparing this message, you know, uh, at a coffee shop in downtown Raleigh, literally like chiseled on the wall in two different places next to the table that I was at. It was just like free Palestine, free Palestine. 
And so this is a big issue right now. And actually, the sermon next Sunday will be titled Free Palestine, question mark, where the sermon today is Stand with Israel. What kind of trouble am I trying to get myself into? Um, But just so you know, these, these Free Palestine rallies are not new. They were happening long before October 7th. They just weren't as big, and the media wasn't covering them because that's its own issue. Well, so anti-Semitism, which is anti-Semites, which is anti-Jewish people, was stirred up. Racism against Jewish people was stirred up from this. And the whole world's going crazy. On November 22nd, 110 hostages were released from Hamas for exchange of 240 Palestinian prisoners that were in jail. So I don't understand the math, but that happened, and I guess that's good. 23,000 Palestinians or people living in the Gaza Strip, they say, have been reported dead. It's a tragedy. It's a total crisis. This war hurting so many people. It's a humanitarian crisis. There now is waning support, um, still support from the USA, though kind of a little sketch at times for Israel, as many have begun to accuse Israel of over-retaliating, right? Reacting too strongly, even saying things like genocide and the rest. The conflict is spreading to the north of Israel, to the Red Sea, to Yemen, to Iraq, to Iran. And so you can just watch the news for that, so I'll stop. But what do we do with this? Like, there's a lot of rhetoric about it. And there's a lot of, from that rhetoric, I would say pressure on you and on me as Christians to have the right perspective about it. Do you stand with Israel? Do you? You want to free Palestine, right? Don't you? So what's right? How do you look at it biblically? It's personal for me too. I just want to share one little anecdotal personal story, read a passage and then pray and jump in. But like for me, I had a chance year before last to go to Israel. And so I went on this trip to Israel and I went with like the premier tour guide, like the tour guide that took me around had just taken the the producers of The Chosen around and just recently took Franklin Graham around. I mean, it's just like epic. And I remember just how like, like amazing that trip was, but I also remember how strong the, the nationalism for Israel was and how tight Israel felt they were with the USA. Like I remember being on the Sea of Galilee and the first thing that happened when we got on the boat was they played the national anthem, the the American national anthem. And two flags went up on the flagpole of the boat, the American and the Israeli flag. And everybody was just like, yeah. And it was just like, wow, this is interesting. And and I remember we're driving in, in the bus and driving around Israel. And it's like, if you look out that window, that's where the, the, the Jewish people live. Look how beautiful it is. They mow their lawns. They pick up trash. It's so nice. Look out the left. Oh, that's the Arabs. That's where the Muslims are. It's a trash heap. Don't look. I mean, it was like, and it was jolting, the attitude at times. And what was weird for me was that I left that trip, got on an airplane, had to throw all of my stuff away because I wasn't coming home. I was going straight to another country in the Middle East where we have missionaries and was going to spend 10 days with them where they do nothing but work among Muslim refugees. And the people that they serve and that they work among, they love them. 
They, they want to understand them. They want to care for them. They don't see them as enemies. They see them as people they're called to love and serve and share Christ with. And so it was just this like jolting sort of dissonant experience. And so then I come back and we do have a trip to Israel planned. And, you know, we do want to have a good tour, God. But, but then I come back and then, you know, the October 7th thing happens. And then there's all this pressure, like, what's your view on this? And I've just been studying and praying about this. And so I want to unpack that over the next couple of weeks together. And I've never felt more as I've been studying for a series of messages like someone might beat me up. I'm serious. It's just the weirdest thing. Um, so anyways, uh, let me just read to you from Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 4, and, uh, and then something from Hebrews. And then I want to pray for our time together. And then we're going to go through the points. All right. Genesis 12, way back in the Old Testament. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The land. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he, watch this, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So let me pray. We're going to jump in to tackle this subject. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, may your word and your thoughts guide our thoughts and, and help me um, to be charitable, to be clear, and um, to encourage uh, this gathered church this morning. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with Israel, free Palestine. What do we do? Let's start with history. So here's like the outline this morning, right? So first, we're going to talk about some history. And with that, you're going to see a timeline. You're going to see some maps. You got a little brochure when you came in. That'll be helpful there. So history. And then we're going to do so much history, you're going to be longing for theology, which is our second point. It's like crazy, right? You're going to never want theology so bad. And, and so theology is the second point. And, and, and that's going to be just us wrestling with, well, how do people understand the relationship between the church and Israel, okay? The third point, I want to give you, under the third point, two uncompelling reasons to stand with Israel. So they are reasons that are in your face. Here's why you should. I think they're uncompelling, not compelling, okay? And then I want to give you four reasons that I find very compelling to stand with Israel. So that's where we're going. So first, history. First, history. So just, just, just sort of relax and just let this sort of sink in. You don't need to take any notes. I've given you all the information there. You might just, you know, want to highlight something. But 1900 BC is when God said those words to Abraham that we just read in Genesis. 
So God chose Abraham to be the forefather of his people, Israel, to bring salvation to him, to his family, to his clans, to his nation, and then through him to the world. Abraham, 1900 BC. And then it would be, you know, hundreds of years later, 1446 BC, Moses, uh, God, the, the people of God had gone from this land uh, then to Egypt, and they had been enslaved there, and God called Moses to come deliver his people from Pharaoh. And so you see that in 1446 BC. Now quickly, as you look at this map, you know the land that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, from the Nile to the Euphrates. It's, a, it's pictured in this map. And the reason I show it to you is I just want you to understand that like Israel has never inhabited all of this land. That, but this is the land that was promised. And so just hold that thought because that, I think, is just something most people don't even know. Now, 1040 is King David, 1040 BC. And you can see the next map will be the, you know, the area that roughly King David and his son King Solomon, that when they led Israel, sort of the peak of Israel, there's the land that it encompassed at that time. Shortly after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. North and south, 10 tribes in the north called Israel, two and a half tribes in the south called Judah. In the background, while all of this is happening, just so you know, in the background, there are empires, you know, like whole world empires happening. And it's just like a historical thing. So the Assyrian Empire is going on from 900 to 600 BC. You've heard of Sennacherib. He's in the Bible. Some of these emperors are just mentioned in books of the Bible, but they're historical empires. So in 722 BC, the 10 tribes in the north are deported to Assyria, never to return. The northern kingdom goes to Assyria, and they don't ever come back like the exiles that go to Babylon do come back. We'll come to that. But in the background, the Persian Empire is happening. You've heard of Cyrus, who decrees that the the Jewish people can return from Babylon, where the southern tribes, Judah, the southern part of the divided kingdom, they had been exiled to the city of Babylon. I know it's a lot. Just follow the outline. Um, So they return from Babylon. They build a temple, 515 BC. You've heard of Nehemiah. He builds walls around the city to protect the newly rebuilt temple. Then there's the Macedonian Empire and Alexander the Great. And then there is Greek. Koine Greek, that's common Greek. That's what the Bible's written in the New Testament. That's from the Greek empire. Greek is Macedonian. Then there's Herod the Great, who was a king of this area in Israel, was sort of the Roman sort of put in place king at the time when Jesus was born. And um, so you, you see in the background here too, the Roman empire, 27 BC to 476 AD. So that is the BC part of the outline. And we've already finished it. So now we're to AD. So congratulations. So now Jesus, most significant, of course, the birth of Christ, the Messiah, you know, the life of Christ, his ministry, his teaching, his prophecy about his own death, then his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, as he foretold in three days, his then visiting with his disciples and letting them see that he's risen, his then ascension and sending of the Holy Spirit. This is all Zero, let's say, roughly 33 A.D. And then there is 14 A.D. Paul is born. We've seen a lot of him in our study of the book of Acts. 
In 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. Here's something really interesting to our topic today. So a Roman leader, a guy named Hadrian, he named the region Palestine. Do you see it there? In 135 AD. He did it because he was frustrated at a revolt that the Jewish people had just sort of done. And he, to sort of mock them, named the whole region Palestine, which is, you know, Latin for Philistine, which was the known enemy of Israel. So he named the region that, and it's been sort of named that for over a thousand years because of that decision. And just so you know, with like the thing Palestine, like when you hear the word, just know that Palestine is like, because he named it Palestine, like anyone who was born there before 1948, we'll come to 1948 in a second. But like, if you were born in Palestine before 1948, if you were a Christian, if you were Muslim, if you were a Jew, regardless of your religion, if you were born there, you, your birth certificate said you were Palestinian. It's an area you know, it's, it, it, it's not always really a place. It's kind of a people, like, it's kind of like the Rocky Mountains. Like, you know where it is. That's not a state. You know, that, that's kind of what Palestine's like. Well, anyway, so that's how it got the name. 1095, the Crusades in the background, another empire, the Ottoman Empire, headquartered in Turkey, Muslim mostly. 1500 to 1900, the British Empire. 1517, Martin Luther, the Reformation, the 95 Thesis, October 31st. 1896, Zionism is founded. Don't have time for that, but it's important. 1917, this is important. The Balfour Declaration gives the land to the Jews. So the British Empire, a a political leader in the British Empire with the last name Balfour, declares that Israel should have their land. Kind of just says, look, I know that a lot of people have lived there. I know that the Jews have been scattered and haven't always been there, but they've been there more than anybody else has been there. It's their land. They're sort of this battered and abused people. Let's give them a safe homeland. Let's declare the British mandate. This land belongs to Israel. And so you can see they drew it and you see the shape of it. And you look at that and you go, I've never seen that shape of Israel before. And that's right. Because shortly after the Balfour Declaration, Winston Churchill um, drew a line. People say he drew this line with a marker, and people think he was drinking when he did it. But he drew a line and created the country of Jordan. Because the Hussein, the Hussein family, the Arabs, said, you gave the Jews too much land, British. He's like, all right. He just draws a line. Most of that line is on the Jordan River. But some of it is just like a little squiggly, and they say it's because he was drinking. But that is real history. And so you see the line there. And so then there is in, you know, the 1930s and 40s, World War II and the Holocaust. Six million Jewish people slaughtered. It's tragic. It's horrifying. 1948. For ethnic Jewish people is a major hopeful day. After the Holocaust, they get enough people in Israel in this land that had been given to them by God, but then also by the British. And they declare the state of Israel in 1948. Huge day. 
There have been little wars, little skirmishes ever since then. In 1993, you see this thing called the Oslo Accords. That's a place in Denmark. It didn't happen in Denmark. I'm not quite sure why it's called that. But that's where you get the two-state solution. And so if you see a picture of Bill Clinton, kind of like this, and the leader of the Jews and the leader of the Palestines, like shaking hands, and he's like kind of bringing them together. That's the two-state solution. The Oslo Accords. Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. So that brings about this two-state solution where you have Israel in the red on this map there, and then you have Gaza, the little strip on the southern part, and then you have the West Bank where some Palestinians are. And then, of course, Jordan is even further to your right on that map. So, okay, in 2006, this group called Hamas took over the Gaza Strip. They're an extreme, you know, Palestinian Muslim group Their organization stands for resistance or violence, and they want to eliminate Israel, and obviously that was their goal on October 7th and is their goal. Well, once they took over the Gaza Strip, Israel had already actually left the Gaza Strip, like completely pulled all people, soldiers, everybody out, and moved them just to the border to kind of keep these neighbors from, you know, crossing paths. Well, that then leads to October 7th. And that gives you some history. And I think I just want to just say before we move on, and you've never been so ready to move from history to theology, I know. But uh, before we do move on, just perspective that you gain from looking at that, right? And a couple of things. One is that Israel has been in that land a long time. Like, it's not like they just got there in 1948 and the British, the West, the white people put them there and like they're forcing and bullying people. That's like not faithful to history. Israel's been in the land a long time. They have been scattered about at times. They've been persecuted, but they've been in that land more than anyone else. History verifies this. Archaeology totally verifies this. There is no one questioning whether there was a King David or a King Solomon in that land. There's all the archaeology to prove it. And of course, the Bible shows it. But you know what else we gain from this history? We gain the perspective that others have been in that land too. Because of all these passing empires and because of the times when Israel's been scattered at times for like a thousand years, others have been there too. And that is relevant and I think plays into our conversation next week about Palestine. But I think another observation as you look at this history and as you just think about it, you just think about God moving in history. And you think about how As a Christian, we are to understand that the problems are not just political problems. They're spiritual problems. And we are looking to see how God is going to work this out. And we know that it's going to be through Christ. So now let's talk about, and I've said theology, but what I really want to do is unpack this question of what is the relationship between the church and Israel? Because here's the thing. You may not have known this coming in today, but the way that you answer that question has a huge impact on how you relate to all of these issues that we've been talking about, if you're a Christian. So like, what is the church in relation to ethnic Jewish Israel, this nation, these people? What is it? And so what I want to do for you is outline for you two sort of broad camps. Both of these camps are Christian. Both of these camps love Christ. Both camps love God's word. And so we want to hold up both and say they're faithful but they're very different. And Christians really disagree on these things. And so first, 
let me talk with you about dispensationalism. And you're like, whoa, I've heard that word before and I've run. And now finally someone's going to define it. Yep. That's right. So dispensationalism first, and that is the far right. That is your far right. And I think it's even helpful to think of them as sort of to the right in the way that they understand things. The view of a dispensationalist is that God uses different means dealing with people during different periods of time throughout history. All right? These are called dispensations. In this system, there's a series of dispensations. You might think of the dispensation of promise, the dispensation of law, the dispensation of church called the church age, the dispensation of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. These are just things. This is how they sort of break down and understand the Bible, dispensationalists. Their view is that the church cannot be Israel. No. The church age is a dispensation. God will revisit Israel in the next dispensation, just like he had a great and awesome plan for Israel in the dispensation prior to the church age. You see, I used to be an assistant supervisor at a frozen yogurt store. And we had dispensers for the frozen yogurt. And this is the best way I know to understand what we're talking about. And it may not be perfect, and you will not definitely hear this analogy in seminary. But we had dispensers, right? You go up there, and you get your frozen yogurt. You can go to the right. You can go to the left. You can go in the middle, get the swirl. But that's pretty much a dispensation. If you want something else, you know what I mean? You got to go over to another one. And you might need a different cup because it's a different dispensation. And so that's the idea here. That is dispensationalism. It's different dispensations. God dealing with his people in different ways throughout history. So now let's talk a little more to the left, covenantalism. So they um, believe that covenants are the theme of the Bible, not dispensations. God deals with man through a series of unfolding covenants. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, all these covenants. And there's great continuity in the covenantal view. Whereas in the dispensational view, there's more discontinuity. The church, covenantalists would say, is Israel. The church is now the people of God. Whereas dispensationalists would say, oh, no, no. Church could never be Israel. So you see the big difference. It's, it's important. Now, we're going to talk about how this plays into this whole issue. But for a moment, let's now take these two big views that we understand. And again, if you want to put covenantalism into the frozen yogurt analogy, you can. You can just imagine that you're staying at the same place, but the yogurt is changing or the cup is changing. You know what I mean? Like, okay, got it. So... Now let's take these two broad views and let's put them on the spectrum because there are places on the spectrum and I also want to show you where I'm at on it. So first let's talk to the far right. Let's talk about traditional dispensationalists. All right. These are folks who are very literal with their Bible interpretation. And so we're thankful for them. You know, they believe that if God told Abraham he would inherit that specific land, like GPS coordinates, like that land, then Abraham 
And his people in the nation of Israel must literally inherit that land. And God told him it would be forever. So it must be forever. Like it has to be. Or else it's not true because we have to understand it literally. And if it's not true, then God's not faithful. Like it's, it's, that's their view. Now, these people, traditional dispensationalists, far to the right, they know world history better than you and me. Or if you are one, then you know you do. They know current events better than you and me because they matter to them. They're watching to see what's happening. They love the Old Testament. They love prophecy. These are Baptists, Pentecostals, non-denominational people. There's a book series called Left Behind written by Jerry Jenkins. His son, Dallas Jenkins, did The Chosen. Yeah. These people love Israel. They love Israel. This is who you want to take a tour of the Holy Land with, these people, because they actually know what they're talking about. You know what I mean? Like, this is, they, they love it. Like, they've been there a lot. Now, a traditional dispensationalist would hold to an extreme view such as this. Ethnic Jews, not, not just like spiritual Christian sort of believing in Jesus Jews, but ethnic Jewish people possessing the Holy Land should be a priority to every Bible-believing Christian because it's a key ingredient in the end times coming. You see? Now let's go to the other side. Traditional covenantal people, farther to the left, farthest left. So when they read the Bible, they see more typology. They also see literal interpretation, but they see typology. Typology just means that there's a foreshadowing factor happening. So for example, like if someone who's a traditional covenanter reads like the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, they see him get sold into slavery. They see him then get promoted and become like the vice president. And then they see all that happening so that he can save his people. And they say, that's a true story. That's an awesome story. It encourages me, but it also foreshadows Christ coming, being sold out, being buried, being promoted and ascending to heaven to save his people. Do you see? It's a type. It's a foreshadow. Traditional covenanters know church history. Dispensationalists know world history. See? Traditional covenanters love the church. Dispensationalists love Israel. That's the difference. Traditional covenanters are, you know, Presbyterians or maybe Reformed people. These are not the people you want to go to Israel with because they have never been before and they don't know anything about it. That's really probably often true. These are the people you want to go on a wine tasting tour of the German sites of the Reformation with. That's it. It's true. And it would be great. I think we should do both. A traditional covenanter believes in something sometimes called replacement theology, which is very offensive to a dispensationalist. I don't believe that replacement theology is a helpful term or or accurate, but what it means is that the church has completely replaced Israel. And so there is no special interest in ethnic Israel. There's no belief that God still has a plan to do anything with Israel as a nation. That's replacement theology. That's offensive to a dispensationalist. That, like, that will start a fight. If you're a pure covenant theologian, you will practice infant baptism. You say, really? Yes. Infant baptism. Because it shows you're really all in on the true and full continuity of the Bible. That the covenant community 
God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is continuous. Not discontinuity, but continuity. The sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was circumcision for the kids. And in the New Testament, it's also for the kids and it's baptism of infants. See? Continuity. So if you're all in on covenant, you got to be all in. That's what, that's what they say. So, okay, so now more moderate views, because there are more moderate views. And then I'll share mine. Progressive dispensational would be, you know, still dispensational, but a little more progressive to the left. Still very literal, but open to some typology. See a more unified plan with Israel and the church, but still see Israel and the church as very distinct, which is what makes them a dispensational. That's the key deciding factor. Now, progressive covenantal. Over on the left side of that line, but not as far as traditional covenant. They believe the church and believing Israel are not fully distinct. They see that if there's one God, then there's one people of God. That's why they're covenantal. That's sort of the thing. They agree with their extreme covenant theology brothers that there should be continuity, and so they understand the infant baptism argument. But they would point out that the true sign of the covenant is not baptism or circumcision, but it's the presence of the Holy Spirit that those two things are intended to signify. Now I'll show you my view. I think I have a slide for it. There we go. So that is my view, but I would just say, you know, based off lots of reading, based off a tour of Israel with a world-famous extreme dispensationalist author who I like very much, who's much smarter than me, and who I am kind of afraid will beat me up if he ever sees the sermon. Um, Through slow and careful reading of all sides of this and through spending, and I think this is always the most important thing, time, prayerfully reading the word of God, particularly the passages relevant to this. So so that's where I land. I kind of land there and... I'd say it's close to the progressive covenant view, but what I think is most helpful is for you to just see my view fleshed out in this third point. So should a biblical Christian stand with Israel? And I would say yes, but not for why you might think. That'd be my answer. So let me give you first two uncompelling reasons to stand with Israel. And and these are important because these are the reasons that people are putting in your face. Like, hey, you stand with Israel, don't you? Don't you? You know, the nation that stands with Israel is the nation that God blesses. Do we want to lose the blessing of God on our nation? Well, then let's not unconditionally stand with Israel. You know, that's the whole thing. And so I would say the first uncompelling reason is this. To get a blessing politically. I, I find that uncompelling. For really multiple reasons. But the biggest one would be that I do not think the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, the one that we read this morning, applies to this modern-day ethnic Jewish state of Israel. I don't think it does. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And so Harry Truman, Bill Clinton, and the pastors who are advising them kind of came to this conclusion, like America has got to stand with Israel unconditionally all the time because we want God's blessing. And that's where that comes from. Like Bill Clinton, like coined the phrase, stand with Israel. 
And, you know, people like famous preachers, like John Hagee, television preachers, they say things like Israel, modern day, ethnic Jewish Israel is the apple of God's eye. Don't turn your back on Israel. This is what, this is what people say. But here's the thing. The way I look at scripture, Romans 9, Paul says this, not all are children of Abraham that are his offspring ethnically. So the point really there being that the true children of Abraham, which would be the people truly that the promises to Abraham apply to, are not necessarily those ethnically descending from Abraham. But they are those who share in the faith of Abraham, faith in God, faith in Christ. And so I don't believe this is compelling. Second reason that I find uncompelling is as follows, to move land chest pieces for the end times. This is what you will hear. You will hear people saying, listen, that land belongs to Israel. God promised it to him forever. And the nation that understands that will stand with Israel and God will bless them because they stand with Israel. And they also will get Israel to that land because Israel has to get to that land for the end times to come. And so they viewed 1948, Israel being declared as a state, again, as like a major biblical miracle and fulfillment of prophecy. There's some good arguments for this. Listen, I clearly see in the Bible that God promised Abraham, and you do too, because we read it, and then his offspring, Israel, to receive this land as an inheritance. And in many places, it says forever. And I do believe God is completely and utterly faithful to keep all of his promises. And for Abraham, this was a literal land. Dirt, trees, waterfalls, GPS coordinates. In the prophets, God promises to bring Israel back to their land when they're in exile, and he does. He keeps his promises. But here's the thing, and this is why I had us read Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 says, verse 10, For he, Abraham, remember, he never inherited that whole area that God promised him anyways. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. But as it is, they, that is Israel, desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Here's the point I would say. I think that God wants to get his people back to his special land. And you know what that is? It's the whole world reconciled to him. It's the Garden of Eden, which was the land that was on sort of the radar before the promised land shows up in the Bible. And so I think that to sort of move the land, chess pieces for the end times and get Israel where they're supposed to be so that the end times will come, I find it uncompelling. But let me tell you four reasons that I find very compelling that we should stand with Israel. And here's the first one. You'll probably think it's funny. That I could be wrong. (laughs) And you could be too, whatever your view is. That's the point really, right? But like, I kind of feel like this should be in here because, you know, well, what if we're wrong about that? And actually, we should stand with Israel and those promises do apply to modern day. I mean, I don't know. I'd rather err on the side of, you know, stand with Israel just in case. (laughs) 
<laughs> but seriously, Romans 11, so Romans chapter 9 through 11 is when the Apostle Paul tackles the church in Israel. And it's an amazing couple of chapters of the Bible. But at the end of chapter 11, like when Paul gets done talking about it, his head is hurting and he writes these verses. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Or who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? So you follow me, right? Like we could be wrong. We don't know. We should have views and we should land and we should have conviction. And it does matter. And it relates to how we relate to stuff. But just in case we're wrong, I find that to be a compelling reason to stand with Israel. Number two, altars of remembrance. Altars of remembrance is a biblical thing, I think. Having a theology of place. Taking, you know, the idea of sacred space seriously. You know, in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, when Israel crosses the Jordan River to go back to their land, Joshua tells 12 men, heads of their 12 tribes, to pick up 12 stones, and they build this altar of remembrance. And they're instructed to do it, and they're told, you know, that for generations after them, their descendants will ask them, what is this? And they'll say, it's God is faithful to us. And he did that, not in theory, but he did it right here in this place. So, I think there's something to be said for altars of remembrance, and I think it's a compelling reason to stand with Israel because of the historical significance of things that happen on that land. Joshua 4, 5, These stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. How much more important the places in Israel where God did so much for us. Number three, compelling reasons. Humble heart and honor. Humble heart and honor. So remember, we want to honor the Jews because they're the people through which salvation came. Jesus was Jewish. We said, you know, Israel could fit six times in North Carolina. And you know, Jesus never left Israel. All of his ministry was there in that small place. We saw in the book of Acts how Paul, when he's going around the world... He always goes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. A humble heart and honor for the Jews. Romans 10, 1 through 2, Paul models this perfectly. He says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. And he's talking about Jewish people that are ethnically Jewish that do not believe Jesus. They reject Jesus. So he's talking about 70% of modern-day Israel that don't even believe in God. Okay, so he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So if we want to have a heart like Paul, we would have a heart that they would be saved. A humble heart. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So they're religiously lost. They don't really know God, but they're into religion. He continues in Romans 11 there, he says, But if some of the branches were broken off, that's some of the the Jewish branches off the original tree, and you, although a wild olive shoot or olive branch, he's speaking to Gentiles here, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches 
If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So we are to have this humble heart and this honoring perspective toward ethnic Jewish people because it's through them in history that salvation came. That's a reason, compelling. Number four, fourth compelling reason and final one. I would just say brokenhearted image bearers. We are called to stand with the oppressed and the people who bear God's image, which is all people, but particularly those who are oppressed by others. When you consider things like the Holocaust and you consider things like October 7th, you already have enough reasons to stand with brokenhearted and oppressed people. And Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So is there some oppression and some near to the brokenhearted that God has for Palestinian people in that I think is the answer to that is yes, and we'll talk about that next week with should we free Palestine, but compelling reasons to stand with Israel are strong. And I just want to close with this. So we've looked at this question of stand with Israel, current events, history, theology, two bad reasons, four good reasons, right? Let's talk just, let's close with just a thought about Christ, about Jesus. The church The the church of Christ is called many things. It's called the kingdom, and Jesus is the king of kings. It's called the temple, and Jesus is the high priest. It's called the body. Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. But it is also called the bride of Christ. Jesus is the husband. And the church is his bride that he gave his life on the cross for and that he cares very much is being prepared to meet him forever. Let me read to you from Revelation 21 and we'll close with this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is future. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and a God and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That is our hope in Christ through faith in Christ. That is the hope that we hang on to and it is the hope that we hold out and share. And so let me finish there and we'll return to this Next Sunday, let's close in prayer.